Welcome back to The Voice of Hope. Tonight I want to share an interview with you from September of 2019. September is Chiari Awareness Month. And my guest on this day was Allison Gibbs. And she is going to share her journey of living with Chiari Malformation. So I hope that as you listen to her interview, you would be inspired and encouraged that nothing is impossible if you just don't give up. So, I'm glad we got that fixed. So, to uh, start out, so when were the first time you started noticing symptoms? Uh, at, like, how many years ago was it, and what were the symptoms? Um, well, um, as you know, I have Chiari as well as Ehlers-Danlos. Um, I, whenever I was little, I, I mean, I mean little, little, <laughs> I could not handle heat. I would almost pass out from it. I had these horrible, horrible, um, what they would call growing pains, which turned out not to be growing pains. Um, But when I was a teenager, probably around the age of 15, I started getting these really bad debilitating headaches. And it started, I think it was like every time I would have a coughing fit. So I had really bad seasonal allergies. So when those would get, when those would act up, I would cough so much that the back of my head felt like it was going to explode. Um, if I coughed once or twice, I'd be okay, but it was when you had that coughing fit that just wouldn't stop. And if I had enough of those throughout the day, then those massive exploding headaches would turn into this all-day headache because I was having them so close back to back. So I was probably 15. Wow. So when you would have these symptoms, especially the heat intolerance and stuff, Mm -hmm. would you ever have spells where you would faint or anything like that? No, I never had any fainting spells. Um, It was usually if I was either outside for a very long time or I loved hot showers. So if I took a long hot shower and then afterwards was in the in the bathroom with the door still shut, blow drying my hair with the heat. It just way too much heat. I would get extremely dizzy. I would get nauseated. I'd have to lay down. My mom would give me like a cold, wet washcloth and I'd have to put my feet up and just to keep from passing out. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, so how long did this go on before you, uh, got a diagnosis that, you know, you knew what was wrong. Well, when I was 15, when those headaches started, we knew something was wrong. Um, My mom also has Ehlers-Danlos, so some of my other symptoms before the headaches, we all thought were normal because she also dealt with them when she was my age. So, yep, and she was told that they were normal because her mom dealt with them. But we had no idea what caused it. We just thought everybody dealt with it. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, when I got my headaches when I was 15, my mom decided to take me to start taking me to a neurologist and try to figure out what these headaches are because I started complaining when they weren't going away. And the doctors misdiagnosed me or mislabeled me with several different types of headaches. Every doctor labeled me with something different. Um, they put me on a lot of medications that made me really sick. 
I couldn't go to school because of it. I was laid up on the couch, and I decided that was no way to live. Um, so I stopped taking the medicines. And my mom tried to push for the doctors to give me an MRI, and they refused. They said there was no need for that. Just put her on this medicine, and they didn't want to listen. So my mom was getting extremely discouraged, taking me to another doctor, and that was the last straw because that last doctor told her that I was doing it for attention. So, yeah, from there, um, I decided to live with it. I started pretending I wasn't getting them anymore. Um, I learned how to push through each one that I got and fake it and smile through them or just pretend that I was thinking about something or, you know, because I'd get that look on my face of pain Um, because my, my mom was getting depressed because she couldn't help me and the doctors wouldn't listen. And I was getting frustrated because the doctors weren't helping. So I just pretended they weren't happening anymore. And she, my mom really thought that they weren't happening anymore. Um, how I got from there to here, it's kind of a long journey because it took me about 15 years to actually get properly diagnosed. Um, So when I went to college and got a job where I was under my own insurance rather than my mom's, I went and saw another doctor because I was still having them and they were getting worse. And that doctor, again, labeled me as something totally different, gave me like four or five different medications to be put on. And that's a lot for for headaches of any kind. Um, And I was not happy with it. I... I went home and researched what he told me I had, and it did not describe my headaches at all. It wasn't anything that I had told him. So I did not agree on taking the medications, and I didn't take them. And once again, gave up and was like, well, I'm just going to have to live with this. And, you know, I guess if it's a brain tumor, I would have died by now. So I guess that's not what it is. And um, it wasn't until I had my daughter... 15 years after I started getting the headaches that everything got worse with her. I was in labor. I pushed for four hours. I wasn't in label for four hours. I pushed for four hours because her head was stuck and that has been known to make Kiari worse, which we had no idea at the time that that's what it was. So we didn't know that that's something I should have been avoiding And the more research I did, I found what they called cough headaches, which describes Chiari headaches to a T. That's exactly what it is. It's just multiple names for it. Um, But my symptoms were getting worse. I was getting more symptoms. It wasn't just headaches at that point. Um, I was starting to have memory lapses. There were conversations my husband and I had that I could not remember. And that scared me. Um, I mean, the headaches were more frequent and all the time. And so I went and found another doctor and I told him, I said, you're going to think that I'm crazy, but I've done my own research and this is the type of headache that I have. And this is what I think causes it because there are multiple things that cause cough headaches. Um, but Kiari being one of them. 
And it sounded exactly like I had been telling people for years. I was like, either when I cough or something, the pressure goes up in my head. I said, whether Mm -hmm. it's lack of oxygen or whatever it is, there's something going on there. And it felt and sounded like Kiari. He actually listened to me, which was amazing. He answered me or asked me a few questions and listened to what I had to say. And he agreed with me and told me that I needed an MRI. Um, He said he could offer more medicine, but it sounded like I've tried all of them. (laughs) And he's like, if I were you, I would want an MRI. And I told him, I was like, that's exactly what I want. And so he gave me that MRI and it wasn't. I think it was the same day that I had it. He called me later that night to confirm our, both of our suspicions of that. Yes, you have Kiari. And that was four years ago. Many years. Oh, that was just four years ago. Yeah. Oh, wow. So you're like a lot of us. It took you many, many years to be diagnosed. Oh yes. I was 15 when I started having the headaches. I am 33 now. So if that tells you anything. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I'd like to welcome Anne-Marie. Hey, girl. Glad you could join. Uh, she also has Chiari, and she said that uh, her OB uh, anesthesiologist did not inform her either about, mm-hmm. you know, the pussy and stuff. And uh, uh, God bless you, too. She said God bless us both. Uh-huh. Um Thank you for joining. She lives in Tennessee. She lives in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh, wow. I'm 30 minutes south of Nashville, so. Yeah. she. We've been talking for about a year and a half now, and uh, that's why I was saying I know a few Kiarians in Tennessee. Hopefully to get back in that area and meet you all yeah. someday. <laughs> that would be awesome. Uh, so... You did not know you had all of your children before you knew you had Kiari. I only have one daughter. I'm a stepmom. Oh, you my have... husband's other two. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're you didn't know any of this before pregnancy, no. and so uh, after you found out, what happened? Did you? What did the doctors inform you to do? Did they do um, other? to find the EDS then or did you find that out later that was later um I they set me up with an appointment with one of their local doctors um that they he says that they sent all of their Kiari people to and I was fortunate enough to get connected with other people with Kiari before that appointment So they gave me kind of a rundown of these are the questions you want to ask to make sure that it's a knowledgeable doctor. And one of the questions was to check if I had EDS. And after my own research, I realized, like, I have a lot of those symptoms. So when I went to that appointment, I it was a very, very disappointing appointment Um, For someone who does all of their Chiari patients, I was highly disappointed. I went in there and I talked to her and she showed me my MRI. Um, And very early on, I asked her about a few things that 
I have what's called a retroflex odontoid. It's that C1 bone that instead of being held straight by your ligaments because of EDS and being lax connective tissue, it moves a little bit and it likes to bend backwards and uh, compress, compress my brainstem. And I had asked her about it and she was like, well, we'll just keep an eye on that. And so I was like, okay, I'm trying to trust her because she's supposedly the doctor that does this all the time. And I asked her, I was like, okay, well, are you going to test me for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome before, you know, because I know that that can, I've been told anyway, that that can change how we approach this. And she laughed at me and told me, she goes, unless you are a contortionist, you do not have it. Which told me, yeah, which told me right then and there that she knows absolutely nothing about Ehlers-Danlos and how that and Chiari can go together side by side so often. And I I only knew that because someone else had told me who also has it. Um, So I thanked her for the appointment. I told her I'd get back to her and I never called her again. I told my, yeah. I told my neurologist um, what had happened, and he felt horrible about it. He said he kind of wasn't surprised. Apparently, she had done her residency with him, and he was like, yeah, it kind of sounds like her personality, sadly. But it did not make me feel confident in her as a surgeon. Wow, you know, oh, Lori Oles, I'd like to welcome her again. She's also another Tennessee girl. She's in East Tennessee. We got all Tennessee girls. <laughs> I'm originally from Tennessee. So uh, we're going to have to get a group formed and meet up there. Yes. Uh, so welcome. And Melissa Hoffman, she's from Australia. She has Kiari also. Welcome, Melissa. Oh, wow. Well, Hi, guys. And, yeah, welcome, everyone. Uh, that's one of the things I wanted to bring up tonight since you have ADS. I wanted to have someone on here that could, the fact that you posted yesterday really made me start thinking because I've always thought this too. I've not been genetically tested. I've not been diagnosed with ADS. When I read certain things about ADS and the facts, especially that one yesterday, it hit me and I was like, yes. Because the brain, you know, it is just a a, a herniation, a, a, a prolapse. You know, like all the other uh, prolapses that some EDS patients get. And because I'm not hope, I'm not hypermobile. I don't bruise easily. I heal really well. Uh, all that stuff. Uh, they said that there's no way I could have it. So that's been a concern for me, too, mm-hmm. because my neurosurgeon, he's like, you're, you're not, you don't have any of the signs. And, but there, I really feel that everyone, except if it's acquired a Chiari from an accident or something like that, that has Chiari, I feel it's a symptom of EDS because of the it's herniating your brain is herniating and those tissues hold everything together and those are the connective tissues and mm-hmm. uh that's why once you have you been to an eds specialist or did you go to a geneticist how did you get 
uh, finally diagnosed with it? Well, um, my neurologist that I have that helped me get diagnosed, I talked to him about it and I begged to get referred over to their genetics department. Um, at the time, they, the doctor that they had that saw EDS patients had actually moved, so they could not take any more patients on until they got a new doctor who was willing. Um, so I reached out to the Chiari, local Kiari community and was trying to figure out who everybody else was seeing, and this one lady's name kept getting thrown around um, where many people had gone to her and she had diagnosed them. Now, she works with... Um, she's actually a high-risk OB, so if you're pregnant with a high-risk pregnancy, which EDS and Chiari patients, we are considered high-risk, um, she would see us, and she does genetic testing. Well, she herself has a connective tissue disorder, which got her so interested in LR the EDS popu like population. So I called her office, and I said, is there any possible way that I can see her? I am not pregnant but this is what's going on. And she agreed to see me. And she clinically diagnosed me with hypermobile EDS, which some people, it's still referred to as type 3, depending on who you talk to. Um, however, that was in 2017, before my second surgery. I've had two. Um, but actually, I've seen her since then, and the more puzzle pieces we put together and the questions that my mom and I answered, she's actually thinking that I'm a completely different type of EDS and that I actually do need to have the genetic testing done. So I have another appointment with the previous genetics department. They have a doctor there that does it now, and I'm going to see him on October 1st. So, oh. I will, yeah. So we'll so see you'll what be we find out. And, you know, that is, uh, I'm glad you brought up that point and talked about, you know, your mother, you said she had the headaches, and was it your grandmother, too? Mm -hmm. She had the headaches because that was one of my questions, because my father died at, at 50, I was 26, so he had paralysis when I was five, and he had some tachycardia, you know, uh, posterior POTS. They, back then, they didn't uh, know what was going on. They didn't run any kind of tests. And, of course, of him dying of lung cancer, we don't know if he had Chiari. But my two brothers do have, uh, one has rheumatoid arthritis, like I told you, and one has anticlosis spondylitis. So that's why I think it is so important that we get these genetic testing done for our children and grandchildren to help them you know, in years to come, because uh, I continue to keep meeting families who have parents and siblings and children that have it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so your first surgery, you didn't know you had EDS. You know, no. you knew after. Yeah. So, um... Oh, go ahead. I went to, um, after that first appointment was completely awful, <laughs> I sought out another doctor that some local Kiarians had spoke highly of. They felt like he was more knowledgeable than the other ones we had seen. 
Um, and like some of the other girls, I think, had mentioned, Tennessee does not have a specialist. We have doctors that are Chiari aware, but not completely Chiari educated, if that makes sense. Um, they are still functioning on the old school ways of, okay, that's a typical Chiari, which there is no such thing. Um, so we just do, well, that's a cut and dry. That's a really, really easy surgery. Like this is how you do it, which obviously, you know, now we know that that's not the case, but they're still functioning on that old way of thinking because they have not stayed up to date on the current research and the current procedures and the current studies of what you, the precautions you should take before jumping into a surgery like that, because each one of us is so different. Um, and one thing is Kiari, they're discovering that more people are actually acquired Kiari. There's way more acquired Kiari cases than they ever thought because of the fact that you have to look at intracranial hypertension and hypotension. You've got to look at EDS. You've got to look at tethered cord. You've got to look at, you know, I mean, there's all these different things that can come into play to consider before just decompressing someone because decompressing someone isn't always the answer. Um, they're finding more people actually have a failed Chiari is what they're calling it. Um, a failed decompression, but that's because they didn't look at the other things first. Um, so I went to that doctor and he did seem more knowledgeable at the time on the knowledge that I had. And he answered my questions. We talked about the possibility of EDS and he did tell me that it was possible. Um, but that he was just going to treat this surgery as if I had it. And so, again, I asked him about my retroflexodontoid, and he's like, oh, again, we'll just keep an eye on it and see what happens. And I'm like, don't, and I'm sitting there thinking, like, now that I know more, I'm like, when your brainstem is compressed, isn't that something you want to address? <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. And the well, retro, the, to someone who does not know, like, uh, can you explain what the uh, dontoid uh, is? And, oh, Lori, she's saying it's sad all our ER hospitals are like that also and can't get any relief or treatment. And I'm better at home in my own bed with my meds, not kidding. And, uh, they will not give you any solution. It's a joke. Uh, it's true. Uh, like us asking for liquid morphine, It. I just wanted a solution, not, you know, the drugs. Yeah, that's what it is. They try to medicate us. They think, you know, that's mm -hmm. the solution. Also to help us find answers. Uh, so for someone who does not know, like, if you're, you're looking at our skull and you're looking at a normal brain, uh, I don't have a picture. I should have printed one off. Um, the cerebellum is at the back of the brain. So where would the odontoid uh, be pressing in on the cerebellum? Where would um, it? it actually doesn't press on the cerebellum. Oh, the yeah, the odontoid bone is that C1 bone that's actually on this side 
of your uh, spinal cord and brain. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not in your throat, but you've got the front and the back part of your spine. Uh Uh-huh. And the brainstem goes down into the middle of it. So this side, they had to go through my nose to help fix that when they did to be able to reach it. But it's a bone that presses, like, if I'm facing this way, it presses back into my brainstem that way. What? Now explain this again because, oh, this is interesting because I have these weird symptoms to where, like, on this side of my face, like, Mm -hmm. sometimes I'll get pressure right through here and it'll go up into the roof of my mouth, roof of my mouth, and down into here feels like I'm choking. And Mm -hmm. then it'll pass once I switch positions but they never have been able to figure that out because C7, when I first had that, I have a cadaver bone in there. It had to be taken out through the front because it was so loose. That was before they did C6 through 1. So the odontoid had to be operated on through the nose? Yeah, they go in through the nose and like back through the back of the sinuses because it's the easiest place for them to get to it. Um, because there's just a little thin incision that they do there and they can reach it super, super easily without actually disturbing your brain or your spinal cord and possibly causing worse damage. So they went back through there and they basically shaved my bone down because it was too long and from cranial settling and then it was bent backwards and they wanted to get rid of that part that was putting pressure on my brain. Oh, wow. This is so interesting. I didn't, I've never, I didn't know how that was fixed. I've heard of people talk about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, welcome, Jenny. Thank you for sharing. Enjoy. Welcome. Uh, so I've heard of it, but I never knew how it was mm-hmm. taken care of in correction of operation. So I always thought they went in through the back, just like when they did the decompression. Well, but, when... It, it kind of depends, kind of twofold when you do that because of the fact that they, when they remove part of that bone and they're trying to fix it, they do have to fuse you. So they go in through your nose and resect that bone, but then they have to go through the back also. And they had to revise my decompression because it wasn't done properly. And then they had to do the fusion in the back. Uh, the fusion. Uh, did they fuse your whole entire neck or? No, they put plates and screws on the back of my head and then they fuse C2 and C3. So I've got rods going from C3 all the way up to my the back of my head. And, and what did they put the rods and screws, all of that for to uh, make it stable? Mm-hmm. To try to make it stable. Oh. But. I'm one of those special, I'm one of those special people because of EDS that my fusions don't like to take. So I'm still dealing with that. Oh, so that's not fused. (laughs) Thank you, Anne-Marie, for sharing. Thank you guys for sharing. So can you explain that why your fusions don't like to fuse and what kind of situation you're still looking at from now? Um, Yeah, sure. So after I had that first surgery, all my symptoms got worse. 
Um, because he made more room in the back for my brain, he also made more room for that odontoid to retroflex back even more. Um, I almost became paralyzed. Um, it, I'm, I know it was on the way there because of how I was feeling and the fact that, that angle was getting worse. So that's when I went to this doctor and they did the fusion and everything. Um, now, they did let me know that some EDS patients don't fuse or don't fuse well. And the reason for that is we don't have very good bone metabolism. So they can put all the stuff that they want to back there. And we, some people heal really, really great. Some people heal really, really bad. I actually am one of those where my body wants to heal really fast. But if it doesn't have good bone metabolism, then it's absorbing that old bone and the bone graft and the stuff that they put in my body to try to help fuse faster than it was creating more bun bone to actually fuse. So I started fusing fast, but never became completely fused. And it's been two years. Wow. So I'm still unstable. <laughs> so that's why you're still unstable. And mm -hmm. you're... Oh, welcome, Robin Sluter, and welcome to our other guest that has joined. Uh, thank you guys for joining us tonight. Uh, Lori Ohl said, do you have to wear a metal equipment, any metal equipment? Um, no. Now, the fusion, the, the material that they used was titanium. Um, and I do have a neck brace that I wear when I need to. I don't wear it all the time. But because I'm not completely stable, my neck muscles and my shoulders work way too hard. And so I get tension headaches all the time, um, especially the longer I'm up during the day. Some days are better than others, um, but my neck muscles and my shoulders are always tight. My massage therapist still can never believe it every time she works on me. Um, but it hurts. And so I have two different braces. I have a hard brace that's plastic and hard, and that creates a lot of stability. Um, and then I have a soft brace, which is just like foam. It's like if you take a towel and wrap it up, kind of roll it up, and then wrap it around your neck. That's kind of what a soft brace would do. Mm -hmm. It just kind of takes the pressure off your muscles so your muscles can relax and still hold your head up. So I don't. And hopefully that answered her question. Did that, did that answer the question, Lori? Uh, I have one of those soft braces, too. And mm -hmm. uh, I was wondering, too, I don't have it now, which I didn't think I needed. Uh, but they give me this brace at one point after I had my neck totally reconstructed. And it was a brace that came down over my neck, and it went down into my rib cage and went around mm -hmm. my body. Have you ever had one like that when you had um. any... I haven't for mine, but that's because they didn't fuse me down as many levels as say that they did you. Um, but I have a friend who's had to have that kind of brace because of the levels in her cervical spine that she was fused. Mine was further up, so I just needed the neck one. Well, I didn't have any fused other than I've had all my neck operated on and reconstructed. But what would happen sometimes is it would be like my rib cage and the lower back would get weak. 
And so they recommended one of those, they call it a corset brace. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seemed to help. So uh, I don't know what that's from. They never could explain it. And they didn't see any more bones loosening throughout the spine. But it's like sometimes when I used to wear it, it's like it held my body together. Yeah. But they seen no bones coming apart. So I don't, I, I never understood why they recommend I wear that. I was just curious if you ever had to have anything. So I guess not, not like that. Yeah, no. Uh, mine's a little bit different. Um, what we are trying to figure out, though, is not just the fusion not working and taking. Um, I have screws backing out of my fusion, and you can actually feel them and see them on the back of my head. It's very weird. <laughs> and it oh, hurts. Can you, oh my goodness, do you, are you able to, like, uh, is it hard, like, where they're oh, popping yeah. out? Yep, it's hard. There's a knot there. You can feel it. Even my doctor was like, oh, my gosh. Um, can you they irritate. Is it bubbled up? Like, is the skin bubbled up where it's at? Or is it, um, what does it look like? I can try to show you if my husband wants to come help me really quick. <laughs> I was just curious because, like, in the back of my neck, because I have screws all up and down the back of my head. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I've tried to tell them, is any of these screws maybe coming loose? No, no, no. There's like, no. The MRIs look fine. We don't show no screws loose, nothing. So oh, that honey. My screws are coming out, and they're still telling me it looks fine. <gasps> they're, it's they're not. Telling... Yes. Hold on. I'll see if husband can here. Hold this right there. Okay. Hopefully the light's okay. You may have to help me and show me. Can you see it? The screw right here. Yeah, it might be hard to see, but it's... Yeah, it's hard to see. Yeah, he says it's so hard to see. But it's back there. <laughs> and you it's... picture maybe later. Yeah. And like, so I Because I was curious, because that's when I kept asking them. I said, I have screws all the way down... From the, my skull down, all the way down my neck. No, no, we took MRIs. So it does it show on the MRIs that it's coming out or no? It can. Um, usually it's on x-rays or CT scans that you can see the fusion equipment closer up. Um, but even then, you kind of have to compare it to your old ones. And that's how I found mine, because obviously I can feel it and it's getting worse. And now I can feel the other side, which before I could not feel it. Um, but I had to go back with my current x-rays and my old x-ray and actually compare. And I learned I've learned <laughs> how to measure and use the measuring tools that they have on there to see and show doctors like this is what it looked like, you know, two years ago. And each x-ray I've had since, it's been getting worse, and this is the measurements now. So, um, now the fusion, the doctor who did the fusion told me, no, everything looks fine. I don't know what screw you're talking about. And I was like, really? Because I can feel it on the back of my head, and so can your partner doctor. Then he started backing up what he was saying, was going, oh, oh, well, uh, let me go talk to that doctor. I'll call you back. <laughs> wow. 
Yeah. So you're the one who actually discovered that yes. there was an issue with the screws, not the doctors. Yep. Well, I used to be able to wear my hard brace. I had to, after my uh, fusion, I had to wear it for about three to four months. Um, mm-hmm. And I can no longer wear it because those screws have backed out so much. It's extremely uncomfortable and actually causes worse headaches because it puts pressure on the nerves in the screw. Oh, my goodness. I can't wear one of my neck braces because of the it hurts too bad back there. What I'm wondering is, see, because it's so many screws back in here, mm-hmm. sometimes it feels like you can actually, like, feel them moving around. Like walking, yeah. uh, moving. Have you ever felt that sensation? Yep. My neck pops when it shouldn't pop. I feel like the equipment, like it's it's very weird. I don't like how it feels. <laughs> oh my goodness. I've never met somebody who's had these same symptoms. It's like, oh wow. Yeah, it's like I kept telling them, I said, I think something is loose because when I move a certain way, you know, it feels weird, and they're like, no, no, you're wrong, no, that's all they keep telling me, so, yeah, how, how have you got someone, uh, oh, do you have osteoporosis, Lori was asking, I, I, I don't know, actually, um, I've never been diagnosed with it, my mom has, and that's one of the things, the genetic testing that I'm going to be undergoing is they think that I have what's called type 7 EDS, also known as arthrochalasia. And osteopenia and osteoporosis is a very common symptom of that particular type. My mom's been diagnosed with it, but I never have. However, um, the screws that they used on the plates on the back of my head Um, we believe is too long for my skull. Something also very common with EDS and especially arthrochalasia is actually a thinner skull than normal human beings. So that's, I have not been diagnosed, but it is a possibility that we may need to research and look into a little bit more. So who would diagnose this? uh, Would a geneticist also diagnose that Mm -hmm. or a rheumatologist? Um, that would be a geneticist because for arthrochalasia, you have to run an actual genetics, a blood work genetics test to test for certain um, gene markers. Okay. And with that kind of knowledge, if you had to go into another surgery, they would need to really be experienced with that in order to know what kind of screws to use for your bones and all that yes. kind of stuff, then, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And another situation with my brain that they have not figured out yet, and they keep telling me they don't know what's causing it, is after my last surgery, my cerebellar tonsils are still herniated, um, if not more, and my entire brain stem is herniated into my spine. So your whole brain stem is in your spine? The whole yep, cerebellum. It's in my neck. Yep. Not the whole cerebellum, the whole brainstem, the medulla oblongata. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then about half of my cerebellar tonsils are, that's all in my neck. And they don't know why? They have no idea. 
Um, there's been theories, there's been ideas, there's been a few things. Um, we're trying to, we ruled out tethered cord, but we're trying to rule out occult tethered cord. Um, now, tethered cord, you can see on an MRI. Occult tethered cord is the same thing, but you cannot see it on an MRI. Um, you have to test for symptoms. And some of those tests that I need ran, I'm actually getting ran at the end of this month in a couple weeks. So we will see. But the other things that can cause that to possibly happen, you usually either look at something that pulls the brain down or pushes it down. Mm -hmm. So other things that could push it down are intracranial hypertension. Um, CSF leaks is a very, very common one. I do not have symptoms of a spinal CFF, CSF leak, um, but I have had sign, symptoms of cranial CSF leaks before. So my doctor is trying to figure out if, with EDS, it's very common to have a very thin dura, which is the sac that holds your brain, and dura is made up of connective tissue. So it's very common for us to get leaks. And so we're trying to rule out a few things and figure it out, but everything is so spontaneous. If you have a cranial leak, you have to be able to catch it on imaging, and it's very hard to catch with me just because my body heals quickly also. So as soon as I get a leak, when, usually when I don't feel good, I lay down. I also drink coffee, which is the things they tell you to do to heal a leak. So my leaks heal fairly quickly if that is what it is. And so it's very hard to catch. And so we don't know if it's one thing or a combination of several things going on. Oh, wow. And there's... Caffeine did that too. So mm -hmm. it can help. Wow. Well, caffeine is actually a vasoconstrictor. So what it does is it, I'm trying to explain this, because it's a vasoconstrictor, like it helps close up the hole that's creating the leak so it can heal faster. And by laying down, you're not up moving where the pressure is going up and down. So you're also more likely to heal and oh, wow. not have as bad of symptoms. So by the time you was able to get imaging, it probably would already be healed. Yeah. yeah. So that's why it's so hard to discover. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's hard to tell because I'm getting worse. But the last time I had cranial leak symptoms was probably back in February. So we don't know why everything is still getting worse. And yet I show no signs of any leak at any point right now. So... We don't really know. And meanwhile, um, my brainstem herniating is very scary because the pons of my brain is not where it should be. It is down to the level of right above my C1. And it's not supposed to be there. So. Wow. So are you experiencing like. Uh, do you get, like, numbness in your extremities, arms, and legs mm -hmm. from it being herniated that far? Uh, yes, I have numbness and tingling in my face, my lips, um, my the left side of my body. Like we talked about, um, the hands, the arms, my arm, mostly my arms right now. So it used to be my legs, and I'm thankful that it's not right now. But my arms will get very tired very fast. 
I have episodes of where I can't even do my daughter's hair because just having my arms up for that long, I just can't handle it. Um, I was holding a bag of dog food earlier, helping my husband, and my arm was about to give out. I was about to drop it all over the floor. Um, I can't open jars to things very well. Um, the strength is not there. People, I'm actually a massage therapist, and people ask me all the time how I'm still able to do massage. And it's because I use a lot of body mechanics, and I've learned over the years how to adapt. And I've had really good teachers that have also taught me how to adapt um, so that I can continue to work as long as I'm able to. So I've just learned to kind of roll with the punches. <laughs> That's what amazed me about you. When you told me you were a massage therapist, I was like, what, girl? Are you kidding <laughs> Because I was like, there's no way I could be down there, you know, massaging somebody with my neck killing me, too. <laughs> there that is are, amazing. There are definitely days where it's harder than others. Um, the days where my hands hurt and my wrist hurt. I have, because of EDS, I have a lot of joint subluxations. So my fingers, my hand, my wrist, my elbows, my shoulders, my back, my spine, my hips, my knees, my feet, my ankles everything. <laughs> um, wow. So on those days, it's a lot harder. And my, all of my clients are wonderful. Most of, a lot of my clients I've had for, I mean, even up to like eight years or so. So they know what's going on. They've been there through all of my surgeries actually, and they've come back each and every time. And so they know what's going on, and I, they know that I never, ever, ever call out of work. So if I do, it's for a very good reason, and they never ask questions. They just say, I hope you feel better. I, we will reschedule for whenever. So I'm very thankful and very blessed. You really are, and to be able to do that, because a lot of us can't. We have a couple mm -hmm. questions here. Let's see. Well, I sure. want to welcome Sherry. Help. Thank you for joining, and... Uh, couple other people that's joined in. I can't see everyone's name here. Uh, Anne-Marie Snell, she was asking if, do you have MCAD? Um, I do not. That is the, um, uh, I just went blank. Anne-Marie, if you want to help oh. me with that. I also have brain fog really bad. It is we second something. That. Right. <laughs> we read Kiarian, so we'll go to the next. Yeah. Episode, the next. But no, grade. I don't. I don't have it. <laughs> Luckily. Okay. And then uh, Lori Ol says, uh, uh, ha "Have you had to rule out pots?" Um. Well, some of my symptoms were very, very seemed very pots related. My geneticist that I worked with told me, we went through the whole gamut of all of my symptoms, and she told me, she goes, you, you do have dysautonomia symptoms. Um, but that was before my brainstem was decompressed. So my brainstem was still squished, which, as you know, a lot of your autonomic system, it's controlled by your brainstem. So she didn't want to send me for testing for it until I had my brainstem decompressed and then to see from there how I would do. Now, I have to say a lot, not all, but a lot of my dysautonomic symptoms have gone away since my brainstem was decompressed, but not all of them because my brainstem was 
squished for so long that there's damage there. And we did not know to how to what extent there would be damage that would be, okay, this is your symptoms for lifelong and this is your new life, or what symptoms might get better and what might go away completely. So I still deal with some dysautonomic type symptoms, um, but I've learned how to manage them well enough that they have not wanted to send me for any further testing or anything. Okay, and then, uh, okay, uh, Wendy Rabowski, welcome, Wendy. Uh, she was asked, asking, how do they test for EDS? Oh, uh, there's a... Uh, okay, oh, Anne-Marie said the Biotin test and genetic testing, is that what you... You've not had the genetic testing. You're, you're scheduled for that, right? Right. Um, most doctors, especially in the U.S., will not order the genetic testing for it unless you show signs of the other symptoms. Um, because there are certain types of EDS where they have to do a skin biopsy. Um, other ones, you have to do the blood work. There's, there's different types of tests. So for me, they originally test me not just on the Baton scale, because the Baton scale is how you test hypermobility. Um, EDS has more criteria than just being hypermobile. So they have like a criteria list that you basically have to check off so many things on it to be diagnosed. Um, like for me, since I'm showing signs of other things, they are now looking at testing, actually doing the genetic testing for me. Okay. I hope that and then answered. Did that answer the question, Wendy? Whoops. Uh, I must have hit the button here, the wrong button here. Oh, you're seeing the signs in the back here. What happened, Andrea? Okay, there we go. Uh, you're seeing behind the scenes of the Voice of Hope. <laughs> here. Uh, Allison, uh, I mean, Jenny said, Allison, have you ever had symptoms of floating dizziness? Uh like spinning, you feel like you're floating out of your body? Yes. Yes. I, which, which is weird because I've actually had that particular symptom since I was very young, um, especially around the time all of my headaches started when I was 15. I would have these symptoms where I felt I was, I could be laying there and feel like I am not in my body, like almost you describe it as floating away from your body. I feel like my, which is kind of the same thing, but I feel like my body's almost like sinking into the bed or sinking into the couch or whatever it is mm -hmm. that I'm laying on. So it's the same feeling, whether it's floating out or, you know, your body leaving you either way. But yes, I've had, I still have that symptom. It doesn't happen as often, but it does happen all the time. <laughs> well, I, the dizziness and everything. Has the doctor explained what that is? Because I get that too. Um, well, I've been doing, the doctors have not told me what it is, but I've been doing some research. And there is a particular cranial nerve that runs in those areas of the brain where we get com um, our compression. And I'm trying to remember, it's either six, seven, or eight. It's one of those, the cranial nerve six, seven, or eight. I always forget which one's which. But that, if that nerve is damaged or irritated or, you know, pressed on or something like that, it actually can give you um, feelings of, like, floating out of your body, like you're not connected to your body. 
So I just discovered that a few days ago, actually. Oh, that is right. I remember you telling me that now. (laughs) It's very weird. We're learning all kind of stuff from you. (laughs) Uh, That's why I wanted to have Allison on, because I thought her story was just very interesting. Uh, A lot of us go through these similar issues, uh, but, you know, I haven't had someone on to really explain it like this. Oh, and marie said, uh, or mass sale. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. No, I don't have that, thankfully. Sleep paralysis, I saw that one. Uh, Yes, I've had that since I was roughly a teenager as well. Um, Really? Would randomly, yeah, it's like you wake, it's like you're awake, but you're not awake, and you're kind of freaked out, but you can't move. Um, yeah. so yes, absolutely. I've had that a lot and it's very, very scary. I haven't had episodes like that in a very long time. Um, also another weird thing is I was diagnosed with sleep apnea, a very, very, very mild case when I was in my twenties, um, snored all the time. I, I, my husband thought it was funny because he's like, oh, it's cute. I'm like, how is snoring cute? He's like, it's such a loud noise coming out of such a tiny person. But it's since I've had my, um, my brainstem decompressed, I don't stop breathing in my sleep anymore. Um, and I don't snore anymore. All things that are controlled by your autonomic system. Wow, that's amazing. See, I have been decompressed, and I still snore. I mean, yeah. even grandson, he will sleeps in the other room, and he's taped me before. <laughs> to well, let there's me different hear. reasons. There's different reasons we snore, but that just for me, for some reason, I don't snore anymore. So whatever that was, it helped. Wow. And then uh, someone, I think it was Anne Marie, asked. If you had to do the surgery again, would, uh, wait a minute. If you were to do this all over again with the knowledge, a true Chiari specialist, would you do the surgery again? If you had the knowledge of a true Chiari specialist, would you do it again? Well, I've had to. Um, if I had the knowledge that I have now, I probably wouldn't have gone to the first doctor I went to. <laughs> Um, but if I, as far as like actually having like the decompression and everything, yes, I would have, um, as long as it was my last surgery, my last surgery was where they also decompressed my brainstem, um, because of the fact that my brainstem was compressed, if I knew what I know now, I would not have been only decompressed, if that makes sense. My first surgery was only a decompression, which actually made my brainstem squished more and almost paralyzed me. So I don't, I don't know if that, that's kind of a complicated question. (laughs) So you had to go in the second time to Mm -hmm. correct the first surgery, right? Yes. Yes. And, uh, let's see here. Oh, Jenny said, uh, oh, hi, Sherry. Welcome. Uh, glad you could join us. Uh, Jenny said, what do you do to cope with the floating feeling uh, so it don't scare you? Is there anything you do to cope with it? Um, 
Well, with the floating feeling, now that I kind of know what it is, it doesn't scare me as much. It's more of like, huh, that's really weird. Um, or sometimes, like, I will get up and move around so I don't just lay there and continue to feel that way. Sometimes that helps. Just either getting my mind off something, sitting up, standing up, moving around, making sure, obviously, I'm stable on my feet and not going to fall over because of dizziness or anything. So I don't know, depending on what happens to you on whether you're able to do that or not. Yeah, that's true. That's what I try to do is try to, if I can, get up so it takes the focus off of it. Because sometimes when I lay down, it seems to get worse for some reason. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, let's see here. Uh, Anne-Marie said, thank you. Uh, she's in the midst of making that decision. It's, uh, it's, a it's a tough decision to make. It really is. Um I mean, because brain surgery is no joke, as we all know who have dealt with this. it's We don't just voluntarily go, oh, yeah, sure, I'll take a brain surgery. You know, it's when you get to that point where you're like, either cut my brain open or I'm going to do it myself because <laughs> something's got to give. So if you're at that point, um, one thing I've learned is get so many opinions. You can never have enough doctor's opinions because you need to feel comfortable with the doctor that you're going to have do that. Um, my first surgery, I was comfortable with the doctor with the knowledge that I had. I wish I wouldn't. I wish I would have had more knowledge before agreeing to do that. Um, but my last surgery, I was very comfortable with my doctor. Um, he has not given up on me yet. Um, don't, I haven't decided if I'm completely happy. I'm still getting more opinions, even though I really like this doctor. I'm still getting more opinions because I'm there. <laughs> I'm proving to be more complicated than the majority of the doctors who have already given me opinions, including the specialist. Um, I'm proving to be more complicated for them. So it's, it's hard to make that decision. And my last surgery gave me a little bit of medical PTSD. It, when I realized that I was going to have to have another, a third surgery, I almost puked. Um, I've been super, super anxious because I get another opinion next week from a doctor who has seen more complicated cases like mine than any other doctor that I have found so far. So I'm really anxious and really nervous, but, um, I do whatever I can to prepare myself. I watch a lot of their lecture videos so I can learn as much as I can. I'm kind of a research nerd when it comes to this. I want to know everything. I don't want things sugar-coated um, just because I want to know the ins and outs of everything so I can be educated because I wasn't the first time. This is part one of Allison Gibbs' story of uh, her journey with curing malformation. So join us in the next episode for part two of Allison's story as she concludes her journey with Chiari Malformation.